0: turn my microphone on, and you'll be able to hear me better, uh, assuming I can figure out how to do it. Okay, okay. so uh, that's definitely live. So, so I'm Brian Smith. I'm your chaplain and your missionary in Tallahassee, focused on college students. And I, I say in Tallahassee because, of course, there's a community college there as well. And I'll be first thing tomorrow morning talking with FAMU, that's one of the few places St. Michael and All Angels received a budget increase in a year when the diocese has reduced budgets. That's not my ministry, that's St. Michael and All Angels, but I, I want them to succeed. And so I'll be meeting with them about strategies, mostly from the mistakes I've made over the last four years, to say don't, don't do these mistakes and here are some things that you can do, but, but pray for all three of those campuses. And then we also have a branch of Flagler over in Tallahassee, for those of you in the know, and Kaiser University. And so I'm there particularly for college students. Um, This diocese is incredible in the face of the country for, for the way we do college ministry. We have, we have Substantial ministry partnered with the Lutherans at UNF. We have a substantial center at the University of Florida. and how many of you are gators? Yeah, so so what usually happens to me at diocesan gatherings is the gators identify themselves and jeer the Seminoles, and then the Seminoles do that to UF, and then we have to compare notes to find who the Seminoles are and who the gators are. So who are Seminoles? Very good. so. Maybe you came out more because of me. I thank you. <laughs> the numbers are not not as many as I was expecting um, with, with the fierce loyalty we have in state um, to these different schools. But here we've got something unique that's not at many campuses. So the dynamic Episcopal ministry at the University of Virginia, for example, is a 10, 15-minute drive from campus led by a guy that Trent and I heard last week, Dave Zoll, um, who gets a couple hundred students to write one evening bluegrass prayer um, on Sunday nights. Um, so, so there are dynamic ministries, but we're blessed with places right on the edge of campus that, that your funding supports and the ability to intertwine with campus in a way that an average church can't. Um, just giving you some picture before I get into the teachings. In our center, we have about 5,000 square feet total, um, mostly open space. And so, when you've seen me calling, it's because our university has F- FSU and TCC, and I believe FAMU have all decided that March 23rd is the day they'll go 100% virtual for at least two weeks. And so, you all might have better ideas how do you do ministry virtually than I've figured out. I've been planning all week to try to figure out how to do that, Um, but you know, here there's nothing that replaces face to face and eye to eye and a hug or a shake or those things, and we can't let fear take take those places, even as we allow science to change our behavior. Um, So I'm excited to teach you about the Tuesday in Holy Week and. And I hope these are helping you in going deeper with the Lord this Lent and thinking about Holy Week. As Trent pointed out last week, a substantial portion of the Gospels is this one week. And that's because in the idea, and this isn't something said, but this is a slightly different take. Um, you have the idea of a covenant covenant that gets made. And it happens frequently a few times in the Old Testament. And then there's one in the New Testament. And a covenant comes with documents around it. So you get what's life before the Gospels outside of this week. What's life when it starts? Holy Week. And then what's life living into that covenant? The end of the Gospels, the resurrection, the sendings, and then the rest of what we have in the New Testament. And so... We're at this turning point as we talk about Holy Week in this new way to be with God. And Jesus is pointed and he's pointingly teaching his disciples who are the ones writing these things down, who've been hearing it, but now it's going in deep. And so when they go to write it, they write their deep learnings in and they've, they've impacted the church from there on. Now, how many of you have fig trees? Because this fig tree just keeps popping up. Yeah, yeah, it, it died. It died. Yeah, the fig tree died, but it keeps getting... Fig trees are going to come up twice in today's reading. Um, how many of your fig trees are producing fruit right now? Yeah, none. Yeah, later. But more than a month later, right? Like, mine just got its leaves. Um, and so one of the things I struggle with with this fig tree stuff is Jesus cursed a fig tree that wasn't bearing fruit out of season. And so, so we'll, we'll read, as they passed by in the morning, this is Mark 11, verse 20. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And that is a feat overnight as well. Um, And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. And so you have this fig tree and you heard a little of it from Trent but now we're coming by Tuesday morning and look, it's dead to the roots. Like you, you spoke and it's gone. And I've spent way too much time personally not just preparing for this but over years trying to figure out why is Jesus cursing a tree that isn't supposed to build fruit in this season and there are a lot of theories a lot of ideas and where I'm personally coming right now don't take this as the way it has to be is that the old covenants were meant to bless all the nations all the time Again, the old covenants, Abraham has said that you will have children more numerous than the stars, and that through you all nations will be blessed. And you get a picture at the end in Revelation. Here we are on Tuesday, and I can't help but go to the end, right? And there's a picture of a tree that bears fruit in all seasons, and its leaves are for the healing of the nations at at the end of Revelation. And so where I sit with this tree not bearing fruit in season, is to ponder Jesus is giving us a physical, memorable parable to talk about us meant to bless the nations at all times. And showing it to his disciples, and you may get other takes on this, but showing it to his disciples so that they remember when this week is over, that charge to go out and bless that, that is what turns the world upside down, that is what changes the values of societies then to this day. Even those railing against Christian values are doing it out of the Christian value of each person and their individualism, their, their care, their, their personal worth. Ideas that were revolutionary. And so Jesus is giving us this physical example of a tree So that we'd ponder it. So that we'd think about it. So that we'd wonder in seasons where our fruit seems thin or the university closes on you and you're trying to figure out how do I keep proclaiming you if this is the way I've been doing it. That we'd lean more into God in those seasons that are growth than we'd do just saying, oh, it's not my season. I I don't have to bear fruit right now but they would have some discomfort with that. Jesus doesn't really leave it there, though. Like He doesn't really give a breath in this account in Mark. He goes immediately, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. And, and so for Jesus, you have this, Look, your words are important. And it may just be that plain and simple. The disciples have been told that what they curse will be cursed and what they bless will be blessed. We take our words too lightly. We take our access and our relationship with God too lightly, just too easily. And so the disciples right out of the gate are getting told, have faith in God. Use these words wisely, richly, fully. There's a guy a number of years later named Chrysostom, any of you heard of him? Good, one. Fewer than gators, fewer than Seminoles. He probably didn't raise his hand. I hope he's heard of Chrysostom. Um, so he, he writes in one of his sermons on these verses, the power of prayer has subdued the strength of fire, bridled the rage of lions, silenced anarchy, extinguished wars, appeased the elements, expelled demons, burst the chains of death, Enlarged the gates of heaven. Relieved diseases. Timely. Averted frauds. Rescued cities from destruction. Stayed the sun in its course and arrested the progress of the thunderbolt. And some prayer has power to destroy whatever is at enmity with the good. I speak not of the prayer of lips. But of the prayer that ascends from the inmost recesses of the heart. And so there's. There's Chrysostom meditating on this, this truth from Jesus that our words matter, but even more helping us realize that these words in our hearts, the, those passing thoughts are, are key for how we continually bless the world, whether it's our season to bear obvious fruit or not. And then, again, we're going to run out of time before I mean to run out of time, but that, that happens, right, every of these weeks. He had two days, so I only have one. I should be able to do it, right? Um, so, so you then have this key for how is prayer effective? How is blessing effective? It's got this piece of forgiveness. This key for forgiveness, that in forgiveness we, we get a chance to recognize where our hearts begin to turn, where our hearts begin to accuse, where our hearts begin to tear down. And can you think in this week the disciples might have some trouble with forgiveness? When this man they've walked with who's changed every one of their lives gets killed, putting them in fear? And so Jesus is trying to set up for the disciples in this private encounter in the walk from Bethany to Jerusalem. Get ready to forgive. Notice forgiveness is going to be critical for you to bear the fruit that you're meant to bear. So then we get into some of the meat, some of the meat, some of the stuff, and I've been toying for years with teaching a series of Jesus' insults or Jesus' burns, or which might play better at the university campus than with you all, or conflicts Jesus creates. Uh, And we begin to get into rapid-fire succession of conflicts and parables that aren't just told to the disciples on this day, but are pointed at different audiences. And so we get into the next verses, and the authority of Jesus is challenged. They came again to Jerusalem, that, that was the title. That's not in the original scriptures. And they came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, Jesus was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. Chief priests, scribes, and elders, three different groups. But they're all in the temple. And it's important to note whose faith and these challenges are in the temple and whose faith is not in the temple. Because there's going to be some big change some years down the road, told about at the end of what I do today. Of whose faith continues in Jewish practice and whose faith ends because the temple's gone. Um, so, chief priests, in the temple or not in the temple? Thoughts? In the temple? Raise your hand. Yeah. Not in the temple. Anyone? Yeah. Maybe. Maybe. You see your priests at the grocery store, so they, we got to be not in the temple too. Um, so, but mostly chief priest ministry is in the temple. Um, with them, the scribes are people who who are writing. They're, you're going to hear about Sadducees and Pharisees later. The scribes are part of both of those groups, but but they're the ones helping the law and helping things get communicated to all of Israel, and they're temple based. And then the elders are again closer to what we use as elders, or at least Presbyterians use as elders. We call vestries um, leadership that help make the church really run. Who in Israel aren't given the lineage of priests because at this time in Israel you have to be a descendant of Aaron to be a priest, but but who are making things happen? Elders, elders in the church or elders in the synagogue, in the temple. Sorry, I'm blurring my words. Um, so, and they say to him, by what authority are you doing these things, or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. It was the baptism of John from heaven or of man? Answer me. And now they're, they're throwing... He is throwing them into a crisis. He recognizes these groups are trying to entrap him, and you're going to see this theme more through Tuesday. They're trying to entrap him. And Jesus, like a good teacher, gives people questions so that you think about it and own the answer yourself. So he says to these scribes, these priests, these elders, was the baptism of John from heaven over of man? Answer me. And so now they take human counsel. And, and Mark is making an emphasis that they're taking human counsel. That, that they are afraid of opinions of other people more than they want to please Jesus and expressly God. And so they discuss it with one another, human counsel, saying, if we say from heaven... He will say, why then did you not believe him? But we shall, say, but shall we say from man, they were afraid of the people, for they all held that John was really a prophet, that John was really someone doing God's work, that, that if they said of man, now the crowds around who are still making up their mind about Jesus say John's absolutely a prophet, we lose our cred, So they answered Jesus, we do not know because if you're stuck in a rock and a hard place and you don't want to answer because neither answer gives you what you wanted of trapping Jesus. And Jesus says to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. If you won't commit, I'll let you keep wrestling with the question. And in that, there's this grace that Jesus is giving them to think about this. Think about what you're doing. Think about what you're engaging in this week. Think about how you're thinking. And he creates this dualism where you've got to choose one or the other. And their actions will make choice. Their actions will say what their words were not willing to say there. But you'll learn that on other days. So then he goes into the parable of the tenants. I don't especially like this parable, but it happened on Tuesday, so I get to teach it. So and Jesus began to speak to them in parables, a man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get, them, get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat, some they killed, he had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come to destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read the scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. So again, remember, this parable is there to the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders, and they realize at the end uh oh, he just told this against us. How, how does he tell it against them? these messengers, these servants, even slaves, as the Greek would suggest, are sent over and over to the people to say, God wants your heart. Again, it's a parable. Fortunately, this didn't happen. It's a parable. God wants your heart. And so he sends prophets. And we have an Old Testament replete with prophets. Those of you doing the Bible in 90 days have been reading a lot of prophets and are, I think, through it now. Um, college will be doing it this summer. Um, so I'm not quite tracking with you there. But, but as, you, as you dive dive in, God says a lot through his servants, the prophets. God gives a lot of hope. God gives a lot of challenge. God calls Israel back to himself over and over. God says clearly he wants their heart. And and so they realize, hold on a minute, Jesus has just said he's God's son, God's heir in a parable. And he's telling this against us. He didn't answer us, but he just answered us. See how he did that with a story? now making you think about it more? Go a little deeper and think about how does it apply? And then there's this crazy line in there. How many of you would imagine killing someone and then getting what the dad wanted to give the son? Yeah, none of you are going to raise your hand, right? Um, And just an absolutely crazy thought there to me. They throw the body out of the vineyard, kind of like Joseph got sent out of, out, of, out of his family's care into Egypt so that they don't get accused of killing him because they can say, oh, it must have been on the road when he was on the way here. But if you're doing it over and over, you know what's going on, especially a smart landowner. God knows what's going on underneath that. And yet they had that thought. And I'm looking for my next. I may have lost. So this fell down, and my things fell out of order. There they are. Um, in notes. So you've got these people thinking about it. But this this twisted. This is from Saint Augustine. Um, of Hippo, there are two St. Augustines. They're Augustine of Canterbury, who was the first, first Archbishop of Canterbury. This is Augustine of Hippo. But how will you ensure that the inheritance will be yours? Merely because you killed him? Hold on. You, in fact, did kill him. Yet the inheritance is still not yours. Do you not recall the psalm which says, I lie down and sleep, and then adds, I wake again? Did you miss that point? While you were gloating that you had killed him, he was sleeping. The psalm says, I slept, just while they were raging and would kill me. What was I doing? I slept. And if I had not willed it, I would not even have slept. For I have the power to lay down my life, and I have the power to take it up again. A Jesus quote, if you didn't catch that. So let the oppressors rage. Let the earth even be given into the hands of the wicked. Let the flesh be left to the hands of the persecutors. Let them suspend him on wood with nails transfixed, pierced with a spear. The one who lies down and sleeps simply adds, I rise again. And so to Augustine, this parable gets a whole new layer of meaning when you get to the end of Holy Week and you look at it through the lens of the heir, Jesus Christ, being crucified and rising and giving us a chance to say, I put my faith in Jesus. That I have no honest, real relationship with the landowner of this parable or God in heaven without throwing myself on the mercy of Jesus Christ. Who, in doing that act of faith and saying, I'm not worthy, but God, I need you. Would you fill me with your spirit? Gives us the inheritance that Jesus deserves. And so, this crazy thought to us in the real world taking human counsel becomes a crazy thought in the God world taking God counsel and exactly the thing Jesus did in dying to give us all the inheritance of eternal life. Ready for the next trap? So paying taxes to Caesar. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and of the Herodians. We haven't met these people yet. So Pharisees believe in the resurrection of the dead. To this day, if you're an Orthodox Jew or a conservative Jew, when you're buried, your feet are facing the east so that when you rise, you're on your way to Jerusalem already. That there is an expectation of resurrection of the dead. Um, little history lesson, part of why the Holocaust was so horrendous as if killing millions of people was not, was because in cremation, it took away the Jewish understanding of that resurrection of the body that's expected that is also the Christian understanding and and the desecration of bodies. So the Pharisees believe in the resurrection and the Herodians are people who are loyal to the Roman ruler of the area. So you've got people who are very synagogue and what belongs to God belongs to God and give it to God. And you've got people who are very government. And they're saying we're loyal citizens of this government and what's due to the government is due to the government. Conflict that we still have to this day of our dual citizenship in heaven and on earth. And so Jesus is taking this not just then but to us today. How do we deal with this, with with the factor of money? So you've got Pharisees and you've got Herodians and they want to trap him in his talk, trap Jesus in his talk. And they came and said to him, teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. You see how they're going from what Jesus has already been doing, trapping people in human counsel and they're going, okay, clearly you're not going to get trapped in human counsel. We get where you're coming from because we're getting trapped in our own traps. And so now the question, the zinger. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Do we put all our trust in God? Do we put all our trust in the government? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius, and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Now there's that whole mess in the temple with money changers. Part of what they're changing is the the denarius with Caesar's likeness into holy money worthy of giving to God. And that's some of where that whole crisis is because if you're the temple and you can set the exchange rate so you make more money so you can use the unholy money to buy all sorts of things, you get Jesus mad. And so they marvel at him, getting them trapped again in their own trap. What's claimed by which entity? And ultimately, what's claimed by God but everything. Every breath, everything we have. At at FSU, every offering we give, we offer post-it notes as well. Because you can't stand in the offering plate or you'd all fit awkwardly in the offering plate and then he wouldn't be able to do anything with it when it came forward if we were all in it. But I give students every week the opportunity to put themselves in it on a post-it note. Um, So Again, God's asking for everything, and yet Jesus is saying, and there's a place for the government. So now you've got a new group called the Sadducees. And the mnemonic I learned was they're Sadducee because they don't believe in the resurrection. Uh-huh. So this verse tells you that. You don't even need the mnemonic. Verse 18, Mark 11, verse 18. And Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. Have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. So Jesus just broke with that question thing I told you earlier, right? Where he stays out of a trap by asking them a question and tripping them up in his insult thing, this sermon series I've not had the guts to preach yet, or maybe I'm preaching right now, um, <laughs> that, that he says to the Sadducees, you're wrong, you don't know the Bible, and you don't know the power of God, period. There is a resurrection, period. He's going to show it by Sunday. But on Tuesday there's still this debate going on and Jesus hasn't shown it yet other than with Lazarus who has been risen from the dead but that's that's a different kind of resurrection. He's saying bluntly there's a resurrection. There is this change and it's an all-time change where marriage doesn't matter. The Sadducees were temple-based. So I didn't give you that quiz because it doesn't say it real clearly. The Sadducees were temple-based and a bunch of years later, 70 AD, the temple gets destroyed. Sadducees lose because without the temple, they don't forward their faith. And so in Judaism, Pharisaical Judaism continued. And, and so Jews expected resurrection because Pharisaical teachers connected with the scribes who were connected to them, their practice could continue without the temple, and the Sadducees couldn't continue without the temple. Again, Jesus is blunt there, I think, in a part getting them ready for a huge crisis that's going to come to Jerusalem and to Judaism in seventy A.D. and in just a few more verses. And I don't think I'm going through this fast enough to finish. Um, So, yeah, yeah, thank you. Um, So, God is God of the living, not the dead. The scriptures matter. Jesus is quoting them, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, counting them as living, even though it's years later. So now one of the scribes comes up and hears them disputing with one another and seeing that he answered them well, asks them. So scribes, again, they're temple-based, they're writing stuff down, and they're on both sides of the Sadducees and the Pharisees. They don't know where they stand on the question of resurrection. But they say, which commandment is the most important of all? And Jesus answered, the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other beside him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared ask him any more questions. And so what, what's just happened? A scribe who's based in the temple, who's keeping things in the temple, has just out of his own mouth said, the stuff we do in the temple is not the most important. The sacrifices are not the most important. But Jesus, what you just said is the most important. I agree. And so now detractors are beginning to turn. The people who kill the tenants in that parable are beginning to turn And Mark is helping us get that there is redemption and salvation available to anyone, no matter who, no matter what, no matter where your loyalties have been. That that turn is possible. It's not too late. Turn. You are not far from the kingdom of God. But those who don't want to be changed, those who realize that Jesus' interactions are really about changing us, they quit asking questions. Because if we're open to be in this space, we're open to being changed. Again, to jump just into my context again, one of the most critical things I think I give college students is trying to teach them how to have a faith that will adapt with the crises of life down the road. My previous congregation were all people who'd come to faith in college, almost all, and still did everything pretty much the same way they had done when they first came to faith in Jesus Christ and had not had the kind of adapt and translate it. And so we often had this prayer that broke my heart when somebody prayed it because I allow, in in that congregation, and my current one, I allow people to pray from their heart at the prayers of the people. And some of them use the forms, and some of them use the prayers on page 810 in the Book of Common Prayer. And the congregation prays. But there'd be a parent who would pray from her heart, God, would you bring all our children who don't follow you back to Jesus? And for so many of them, they were aching in that congregation because they had not translated their faith to their children that their children felt like their faith was music that sounded like nice 60s rock music and not like 80s music. Or organ music, like that, that they had this whole whole mix and had not been able to translate their faith. And then they'd pray this prayer because their experience was all of their children that could be heard by my children or other children in the congregation that the norm is to grow up and not follow because of the way all of our children gets prayed. Back to that first point, our words are important. Our fruitfulness happens, and Jesus cursed the fig tree so that we'd think about our words. And even in our prayers, pray the prayers that move mountains and bring our children to real, robust, fruitful, durable faith forever. As well as us, because it helps when you have that crisis that you didn't want come along. We could go lots more there. The Episcopal Church is really good at talking about love. Um, I'll let you keep in a good Episcopal Church talking about love. So, and Jesus taught in the temple. So now he's for sure in the temple and he's teaching, and he says, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself, in the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. So there are people listening. And what Jesus again is doing is saying, Here I am. I'm the Lord. I'm the rightful heir, Jesus is saying that, don't get it about me, that's not me. Um, Jesus is saying, I'm the Lord, I'm the rightful heir to David, I'm the promise fulfilled. David is told that he will have descendants on the throne of Israel for eternity. And so now Jesus is fully fulfilling the covenant promise that, that God made to David. Not because David was perfect, but because God decided to bless David and say, this is going to happen. And God you chose an imperfect vessel, and David, like you and I are imperfect, to bring about that redemption of the world and relationship with him through Jesus Christ. I did a really smart note here, and I wrote down Psalm, but I forgot to write which one. Um, <laughs> so I've got Psalm here in my notes. Um, is it? Ten, do you know it offhand? Is it 10? Psalm? It, yeah. So it's a psalm. You can type those words into a concordance or the Bible and it'll come up with both this verse and the psalm. It's the, the same thing. 110. Okay, I remembered the 10. I'm going to put it in my notes. Um, so the Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put my enemies under your feet. And just as an aside, this time is ticking fast. Um, As an aside, over and over, it's an interesting study to look at the way the New Testament uses what we call the Old Testament. To say over and over, Jesus fulfilled these promises there was a non-Christian mathematician who went, what are the probabilities that all of these things get fulfilled? And, and came to the conclusion that it's basically impossible. And yet our New Testament says over and over that all of these things are fulfilled. So now he's there. He's had a scribe agree with him. He's now asking the, like, challenging the scribes publicly and people are going, yay, those people are not being nice to us, to put it mildly. We're tired of the temple lording behavior over us and missing missing the heart. And so he's now ready to go for the scribe's jugular. And in his teaching he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And then he goes on and tells a story from real life. Often it's a parable. This is a real life story. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people put in money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins. Which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. And again, to take you to that giving thing, Jesus talks a lot about money. And he talks a lot about he deserves everything. And so he's holding this widow up, not to say, look at, I mean, yes, to say, look at the scribes devaluing her for how little she puts in while they go around in rich robes purchased with those two pennies. But also to say, look, you're meant to give everything, everything to God. Put another way, Wesley had 20, John Wesley, who died an Anglican, had 22 questions that he, he put to people every day in his holy club. And one of those 22 questions was, are you praying about how you spend your money before you spend it? you ask that of yourself when you stop at McDonald's or when you you make your choice? choice in a day so trying to speed up but the last bit is both hard and one big piece so as he came out of the temple one of his disciples said to him look teacher what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings and jesus said to him do you see these great buildings there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down That hit people's hearts hard, and you know it because you hear jeers on the cross, you who would destroy the temple. If Jesus were trying to stay alive, this would be a comment not to make. If he were trying to save his hide, because people loved their temple. Even as much as they might grumble against it and be upset about those scribes, people loved their temple it hit them hard to go you could lose it in a day. Like in this diocese we've helped rebuild churches that have been destroyed by a hurricane in a day. But our places of worship our hearts get intertwined with them. Even when they're places where we travel from far far away even when they're places we disagree with the majesty of those places speaks to our relationship with God. God and so Jesus says it's it's going to be destroyed bluntly most christian theology through most of time has said this is a foretelling of the destruction of the temple in 70 AD decades before it actually happens that Jesus is warning his followers and anyone who becomes his followers to be aware of what's coming And I think much of the rest of what we have, signs of the end of the age, the abomination of desolation, these are titles, and the coming of the Son of Man, are about preparing people to see Jesus, to keep their eyes on Jesus when things go wrong in the temple, and when the temple's destruction also signifies the end of the ability to do the covenant as it was made with sacrifices on the temple mount. When, when the way in which covenant is done and people keep up their end of the bargain and the one covenant that has people having to do things to keep their end of the bargain, the one made with Moses and the people in the desert, when that ends with the temple's work, I think he's prepping them to be aware to flee Jerusalem when the temple's being destroyed, to save their lives, to hope that that is not done like that that temple destruction is not done in the winter time when it's going to be harder to live under that kind of oppression. But to hope also that it's not done or that, that people aren't with a fresh baby nursing. That, that you would be in a place ready for that. Um, and at the end of these, these verses, and I'm skimming over them so that I stay within time, he, he talks of... Of the the false Christ, the false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders and lead you astray if possible. The elect, the elect, those who are then following Jesus Christ, who've put their trust in him, who recognize that he is the final sacrifice, that those other sacrifices are no longer necessary, just as he got the scribe to say, to be on guard keep the faith. But you've also probably all been exposed to lots of other theologies that talk about these very same passages as having relevance for some unknown time in the future. And so I want you to think about these passages both as a then, but that we don't have the fullness of the resurrection yet, the one that's promised in the return of Jesus Christ. N.T. Wright, who you've probably heard of here, um, in a series called Exploring Christianity, says we have life after death, which is what most of us think of as life after death. And then we have life after life after death, which most of us don't give much thought to at all. His quote is just there's life after death and then there's life after life after death. My elaboration is we tend not to think about that life after life after death and end up confused like the Sadducees in this hope we have in the long resurrection so Jesus came in a sense with these destruction things that there was a destruction there but there's also this other thing we're waiting for so last you've got no one knows the day or the hour stay awake but from the fig tree learn its lesson back to this fig tree as soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves you know that summer is near So also when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Again, language, I think, to the destruction of the temple, heaven and earth, the way you understand, the way you engage are going to change. And we have this time where both covenants are operating after Jesus' death and resurrection, where they can no longer at the temple. So I didn't leave nearly as much time for questions as I wanted to, but we we have a couple minutes left. Are there questions? It's not really a question, as much as it is an observation. Yeah. When Jesus was being questioned by the hierarchy of the temple, it just reminded me so much of what's going on in our American election. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, we're, then and now we're in a soundbite culture where we're trying to get people not in relationship, but to say something that we can really keep getting them for. Yeah, and it's key to then have enough relationship and notice in ourselves when we're looking for a reason not to forgive to, to find that back to the beginning of this Tuesday lesson. Yes. So I've got verse 37 as the end of Tuesday. Um, Mark 13:37. And then you got in 38, a line that's about, um, "It was two days before," to give you the indication of the next part. So again, last words in verse 37, "Stay awake." Stay alert, stay aware, don't let things numb your sense of Holy Week and your awareness of Jesus Christ and his desire, no matter what, to bring you into eternal relationship with the Father that will bear fruit here and forever. Okay? Thank you. Well, again, thank you very much for enlightening us tonight. It's a privilege. We, we got to meet all the way back in seminary, even though we, we have a mutual friend who's a chaplain over at NAS Jacks, Ian McCarthy. Uh, he introduced us as Brian went to VTS, and Joe and I both went to Trinity. But uh, he, if you want <clears throat> to ask him something or meet him afterwards, please do. But he has a brand new two-month-old baby to get home to all the way back in Tallahassee. But again, thank you for being yeah, thank with you. us. Yeah. Yeah, thank you very much. Uh I'll end with a blessing and a dismissal. And again, thank you for being here tonight. May the blessing of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit be with you now and remain with you always. Amen. So two quick pitches. I've got in my bag there that you're welcome to open up the front pouch of a whole bunch of resurrection bracelets. Our chapel is called Chapel of the Resurrection. I want everybody to be about the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. I have a big source of them. You're welcome to grab them. That bag hasn't been touched what's inside of it. So you you can do that. You can also go sterilize it, no problem. If you want stickers, Chapel of the Resurrection, I've got those up up front. But I try to give five of these away a day. You'll help me meet the quota today because it's hard to give them away when you're driving. Um. Go in peace to love and to serve the Lord.